Well, good morning. He is risen. Amen to that. It's a joy to be able to say that. Uh, we anticipate it on Easter Sunday morning, but really it's an anthem that we can and should repeat throughout the year. He is risen. He is risen indeed. It's been the, the motto, the statement of Christians for well over 2,000 years. It's been repeated by Christians. This isn't a new saying. It's not a new refrain. It's one that was repeated by those earliest believers so many years ago. You know, as much as we may enjoy the Christmas season, as appropriate as it is to celebrate the birth of our Savior, it is Easter that is central to our worship and our celebration as Christians, is it not? But perhaps a more important question this morning, one for us to consider is this, what is it specifically that we celebrate on Easter? I've shared this before, but a few years ago, NPR issued a correction after they described Easter as the day celebrating the idea that Jesus did not die and go to hell or purgatory or anywhere at all, but rather arose into heaven. It was quite a blunder. NPR conflated the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ with his later ascension into heaven. Considering that Easter is so central to Christianity, that is quite a mistake by the religious desk of one of the world's largest news outlets. And yet, NPR is not alone in misunderstanding the importance of Easter. Even if you recognize that we are celebrating Jesus' death and his resurrection, many persons struggle to articulate why it was necessary for Christ to die and what exactly was accomplished by the resurrection. In fact, if I were to ask you to turn to the person sitting next to you and explain first what was accomplished by Jesus' death? What specifically was accomplished by his death? But then secondly, what was additionally accomplished by his resurrection? I wonder how you would answer. I think many of us, when we think about Easter, we, we lump together his death and his resurrection and do not really think about the unique significance found in each of these events that bookend this weekend of celebration. This morning, we're going to turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5, where we see a description of what was accomplished by the death of Christ, and secondly, what was and is accomplished in his resurrection. And we want to look at this so that we might fully rejoice in what God has done this Easter season. So read along with me, if you would, beginning in verse 6. Romans 5. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Not only this, 
but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, we do rejoice this morning as we celebrate the resurrection of our living Savior. Father, we desire to rejoice and to respond with the fullest praise. Father, help us to understand this morning, to reason together over the significance and the meaning and the necessity of your death. But Father, also what it was and what is being accomplished by your resurrection. The miracle and the reality that we have a living Savior. Father, pray that this would be impressed upon all of us, that you would renew within each of us a desire to serve you, to worship you, to orient our lives in worship and in service to a living God. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Paul's epistle or letter to the Romans is often considered one of the greatest and most thorough presentations of doctrine in all of the New Testament. It's no surprise then that we find within this letter reminders of the importance and the significance both of the death of Christ as well as his resurrection. And as we work to unpack these six verses this morning, many of us will be transported back in time as we remember our former manner of life. In fact, Paul does this frequently throughout his letters to the churches. In Ephesians, for example, Paul continually describes writing to believers saying, your former manner of life, your former manner of life, remember, remember, impressing upon them the significance of remembering where they have come from. One of the great dangers of any people in any generation is forgetting. You've likely heard the aphorism, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. We might modify that and with regard to our salvation say those who forget their former manner of life are doomed to a lackluster and vapid Christian life. And so Paul takes us back, as he does in so many of his letters, to remembering what Christ has done and what and how we existed prior to Christ. So let's look together at verse 6 as we are reminded of the forgiveness of God and what life was like or Perhaps for you this morning, what life is like without Jesus Christ. Verse 6 opens by orienting us to a time of helplessness. And we notice right away that God did not wait until we began to help ourselves to make ourselves more righteous before sending Christ. Rather, it was while we were helpless. Now, I don't think there's any of us that like admitting we are helpless. We will often go to great lengths to avoid asking for help. We'll deny the reality of our helpless circumstances. Just ask any man who's been lost how long it took before he was willing to ask for directions. We prefer to act according to the adage of God helps those who help themselves. A statement which you'll never find within the pages of Scripture. Now, it's one thing to be helpless when it comes to being lost and needing directions. But to be helpless with regard to God is to be alienated from God. It's to be defined and to describe as a hater of God. To be under the wrath of God. 
And you may be here this morning saying, I don't hate God. And yet we display our hatred for God in a variety of ways. For some, it is outward verbal expressions of hatred and defiance. For others, it is more subtle and inward, even giving lip service to a form of religion or religiosity, but inward refusing, inwardly refusing to submit to Christ as Lord, choosing instead to cling to our sin. You see, we hate God, we defy God, when we prioritize our own wants, our own desires and life above submission to Him, refusing to repent and turn from our sins. Every sin is an act of defiance. Every sin is an act of hatred toward God. Whether you were or are an outwardly defiant hater of God, or whether you are working to conceal it, we all were, by definition, at one time, atheists. You see, an atheist is not merely one who denies God with their words and with their lips, but it includes those who deny Him with their actions. And there was a point where every one of us fit this definition. Paul uses the term ungodly to describe the atheists. Quite literally, the ungodly are those who are without God. That's what it means, really, to be an atheist. An atheist tries to live life apart from God, without God, wanting nothing to do with God. Some are very vocal about this. Others just simply go about their lives as if God plays a very little, if any, role in it. Regardless of what they may say, they act and they behave, they make decisions, they go about life as if God doesn't matter. And we all were or are atheists, orienting our lives around those desires, not those of God, foolishly trying to find meaning in our lives apart from Him. But what is more terrifying than this hatred of God is the penalty or the result from it. What is so terrifying about the state of helplessness is that we are helpless to avoid and prevent the wrath of God from then falling upon us. And that is where we all were or are living. As Paul says earlier in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none that escape that all-encompassing all. Romans 6.23 then goes on to say that the wages, the payment, the penalty of sin is death. And this is not merely the death of life passing from this body on earth. No, you will continue to live fully conscious, fully aware, suffering the wrath of God where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, unquenchable suffering and punishment. This is the state of every human being who has ever lived since the time of Adam and Eve. There's not a single person in this room who does not or has not fit this description at one time in their life. But you see, God was not content to leave us without hope. But in order that he might demonstrate his great love, you see, it's still about him. But it's so that he could demonstrate his great love. At the right time, he sent his son, Jesus Christ. What is meant by the right time that Christ died? It means quite simply that God appointed the time. We see this throughout the pages of Scripture. This was not plan B. This was always God's plan. That he would send his son into the world to redeem 
from those who were under his wrath, those who would forever praise and glorify the Son and the Father and the Spirit. So Christ arrived on the scene not a minute too late, not a minute too early in God's plan of salvation. And here at this right time, as Paul will go on to emphasize, is a truly remarkable statement. Something that is really hard to comprehend when you stop, pause, and think about it. And it's those for whom Christ died. You see, we all think we're worth something. We all think that we're pretty much, you know, worth just about anything. Scripture has a very different perspective on us. See, Scripture says Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for all all who are born into this world are ungodly, haters and enemies of God. So at the right moment, God sent his son on this divine rescue mission to the world he created in order to rescue and save ungodly, hateful persons who wanted nothing to do with him. And Paul slows down to show us how truly remarkable this is in verses 7 and 8. To further emphasize the magnitude of Jesus' death, Paul notes that one will hardly die for a righteous man. Who is this righteous man? That's someone who's good. It's someone who's just, honest, honorable, trustworthy in this life. For that type of person, they certainly demand respect. We appreciate them. But there are a few, without having a close relationship, would voluntarily say, kill me, not them. Offer their life on behalf of that other person. So Paul next says that if it is a good person, perhaps you would lay down your life for them. A good person is a reference to one who has a claim on my affection. Someone I might love. This occasionally, Paul says, a person will die for the sake of someone they truly love. A soldier for his friends, a parent for his or her child. But the amazing quality of God's love is seen in that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Hating God and rebellion against Him. And what is perhaps even more remarkable is it wasn't just one hateful person or two hateful persons. It was all of humanity that hated God. As one early church pastor wrote, how can it be that someone would dare die for a multitude of the ungodly? For if someone dares to die for a righteous or a good man, it's probably because he has touched him with some sort of pity or been impressed by his good works. But in the case of the ungodly, there is no reason to die for them. Now, if you've grown up in church or been in church for some time, this is probably not new. You've heard this before. It's possible that you've even become somewhat numb to this truth. That's why it's important and necessary that we remember and be reminded of these things. When is the last time you really stopped and considered how unlovable and undeserving you are? That is so counterintuitive to our nature. It's counterintuitive to our culture. We really like to think the best about ourselves, don't we? We like to weigh out our good and our bad, and when we do this, we always find more good on the ledger than bad. It is nearly impossible for us to rightly evaluate ourselves. We always place a finger on the scale when evaluating ourselves. 
Even secular studies show that our natural propensity is to see ourselves in the best possible light and to downplay our faults, our vices, or what we would say is our sinfulness. But have you ever stopped and tried to view yourself the way God views you? In your sin, as the ungodly, as a hater of him. I mean, how many persons do you know who act in hatred and violence against you that you would be willing to lay down your life for them? The correct evaluation of every person is found in what the psalmist David wrote in Psalm 14. You can turn there. The beginning of Psalm 14, David uh, describes that atheist. Says there in verse 1 of Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And yet, as Paul says in verse 8, but Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and it was not because we were worthy, it was not because we had earned his favor. But it was because God desired to demonstrate his love in a way that would echo for all eternity. It was not after we started loving him. It was not when we had stopped sinning. But while sinners, while haters, while helpless, while ungodly, that Christ died for us. For Paul, then, the death of Christ becomes the most natural and demonstrable evidence we can ever have of the love of God. And all of this moves us closer to answering the question of what is significant about the death of Jesus Christ. It is certainly unique. It is certainly special. It is certainly hard to wrap our heads around how a godly and righteous person would give their life for an ungodly person. But why did he have to die? Why is it good news? What has his death accomplished? And we look to verse 9 to answer that question. This death has done something that no other death in human history could do. It has brought with it justification and reconciliation to God. In verse 9, Paul says, we are justified by his blood. That is his death. A very basic definition of biblical justification is that God has declared us innocent on account of Christ's death. We were fully guilty. There was a debt that had to be paid. God's wrath had to be satisfied. God would not be holy. He would not be just. He would not be God if his wrath was not satisfied. It had to be satisfied. There was a debt that we could never fully satisfy that had to be paid. But this justification is that God has declared us innocent on account of Christ. 
in the courtroom of God with the punishment of eternal wrath hanging over us like the sword of Damocles, God has declared us innocent. We were fully guilty. That debt had to be paid, but the punishment and debt was paid fully by another. Not just by any other person, but the son of the divine judge. And who are the we Paul is talking about who have been declared justified? Is it every person? Sadly, the answer is no. While Christ died for every person, there were many who refused to accept the payment that has been made. Can you imagine the foolishness of a criminal who, while standing before the judge, sentenced to die, refuses to accept the payment that has been made on their behalf? And yet that comprises so much of the world. It comprised us, even those who are believers at one time in our life. Paul identifies those who are justified at the end of chapter 4 of Romans. The justified are those who believe in God who raised Jesus from the dead. Faith in God makes you part of that we who have been justified. Or as Paul will say a little later in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But how do I know if I believe? Belief and confession with our mouth is then manifested in repentance from sin, turning from sin, growing in the practice of submitting your life to the will of God. Instead of hating God, hating the sin. As Paul moves into the first half of verse 10, he interchanges the word justify with reconcile when talking about the significance of Christ's death. However, he's not describing the same thing. These are not synonymous terms. This is an additional aspect, an additional reason why Christ had to die. There's something else that takes place with the death of Christ on the cross. For those who believe in God, we are reconciled. Because of Christ's death, he secondly removes the hostility that existed between us and between him because of sin. That's what reconciliation is, is to make whole this breach in the relationship. And where on the one hand, justification has the idea of a judicial forgiveness and pardoning, reconciliation is relational. We are not only declared innocent, but we are also brought into a close relationship with God through the death of His Son. As Paul says in Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This first half of verse 10 explains what is accomplished on Friday through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. His blood brings justification and reconciliation. We who were enemies toward God because of our sin, who were hostile to God, The blood of Christ has now ended that hostility if we will believe on him. Because of the death of Christ, we who believe are spared God's wrath against sin and brought near into relationship with him. If we turn to Christ as the only hope we have for the forgiveness of sin. But what of the resurrection? If God's wrath was satisfied by his son's death, What need is there for the resurrection? Apart from proving that Jesus was God, 
Is there any ongoing significance to the resurrection? Well, the second half of verse 10 says, we shall be saved by his life. This term life is a reference to the fact that Christ lives. It's in the present. It speaks to he is alive. He was raised from the dead. And notice what it says too, shall be saved. We're in the habit of looking at being saved as that moment in the past when our eyes are opened and we confess our sins and turn to the Lord in this life. And Scripture does at times use the term save in this way, but far more often it uses the term save with a view toward the future. The meaning of the term save will depend upon context, but most often it is used to depict the believer's final deliverance from death and the wrath of God in what is called the last day. In other words, we are spared God's wrath through Jesus' death, but we are kept safe from his wrath ever again falling upon us by his life. As one pastor wrote, the work of Christ continues to be crucial, only now with this difference, that whereas our justification was achieved by his death, our preservation is secured by his life. Jesus' resurrection means that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father and there intercedes on our behalf. Why is that so important? Because were it up to us, we would lose our salvation. And were it not up to a living intercessor, a living Christ, we would lose our salvation. Were it not for his resurrection and life, our future hope could not be secure. Were it not for his resurrection, we would again fall under the wrath of God. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since, because, he always lives to make intercession for them. Or as John describes in 1 John 2, we have Jesus interceding on our behalf with the Father, an ever-present reminder that the debt of sin has been paid for those who believe. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. John writes to believers, saying, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have, not we had. He is living. And He Himself is the propitiation, the payment for our sins. The very one interceding for us is the one who is paying for our sin. Not for yours only, but also for those of the whole world. The reason that we celebrate the resurrection of Christ is because it means that justification and reconciliation is now made permanent. And will forever be preserved because he lives. You see, this is what gives us hope. And this is what gives us joy. There was a praise song written about 50 years ago with a refrain that says, Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because he lives, I know he holds the future. And life is worth living just because he lives. And that is so true. 
This is exactly the point that Paul makes in verse 11. Because he lives, we can rejoice in God forever. Because he lives, we can rejoice in the debt that was paid on the cross. The cross is our reason for rejoicing over our reconciliation to God, but the empty tune tomb and the resurrection is our reason for rejoicing in our future hope and salvation where we will enter forever into the presence of God and enjoy him forever the resurrection means that our reconciliation is certain now and forevermore and that is good news it should make our hearts light this Easter morning However, it's only good news if you have repented of your sins and experienced the reconciliation offered at the cross. Only then do you have that hope of heaven secured by the resurrection. There's a reason that though death is the most common feature of man, every single person dies, that we still fear it. We avoid it. We hide it. You go into hospitals where death abounds and they do everything they can to hide death from you. Why? If it's so natural, if it happens. It's because we were not created to die. Sin entered the world and death came through sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. But that death is not just describing, as we've said, what happens in this life, but in the life to come. There's a death far worse than the last breath you take in this life, and that is death separated from God under his eternal wrath. You may be here this morning, and by your evaluation, you are not a bad person. You are not in outward rebellion to God. But there's a problem with that. That's not the standard God is using. The standard against which you will be measured is were you perfect? Have you ever sinned against God? One sin, one act of defiance is the most grievous, traitorous act you can ever commit. If you're like me, it was more than one, more than two, more than three, more than I can ever count. That's the standard against which I will be measured. And if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in the death of Christ to satisfy God's wrath, if you're like that that person standing ready, convicted, but yet with the freedom of forgiveness offered right there, someone else has paid the penalty for you and you're refusing to accept it. It's foolishness. It is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. That there is no God offering forgiveness. That there is no wrath to come. If you are refusing to accept the death of Christ, to satisfy God's wrath to, toward you, then you are for all intents and purposes a practicing, a practicing atheist without God. So if you are here this morning, then please do not wait another moment to repent of your sins and call out to God for forgiveness and trust in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For those who have trusted in Christ, this reminder of what we were should cause us to rejoice even greater this Easter as we celebrate the resurrection of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, because it reminds us of how secure our future inheritance is, how secure our hope is. It gives us reason for living today. It gives us reason for living in a world that is hard, that is painful, that is difficult, because this life 
is merely preparing us for the life to come. And it's for that reason that we respond in, with, with joy. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you. Praise you for the great work that you have done on the cross and at resurrection. We thank you that we have a living Savior who is daily, hourly, minute by minute, second by second, interceding on our behalf, continually reminding you of the payment that has been made for sin, pacifying your great wrath and your justice and your holiness. Father, we thank you for your great love that has been bestowed on us, that so many of us would be called your children Lord, I pray that if there are any in this room this morning who do not know you, who are not and cannot claim to be your children, that you would burden and impress upon them their need to turn from their sin, that the payment has been made, and to rejoice in your resurrection and the security that is offered, the hope that is offered that will completely change one's outlook on this life. Father, we are humbled as we read these words, as we contemplate that you would die for the ungodly, as were all of us. Father, we rejoice that you did just that. We praise you for the resurrection. In your name, amen.